If you will turn in your Bibles to the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke as we continue our study through the Word. Now, ever since Jesus healed that leper and that leper went and showed himself to the priests, the, now the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees, they have been milling about Jesus' ministry. They are watching his every move. And you will remember how the friends of the paralytic, they believed uh, that if they could just get their friend into the presence of Jesus, that Jesus could heal their paralyzed friend. And so they went over to his house and they put him on a bed and they brought him now to the house where Jesus was. But there was a problem with the plan. And that was when they got there that the crowds were so surrounding the house that they had no way to get Jesus into the very, to get him into the very presence of Jesus. And so you'll remember what they did. They climbed up onto the roof and they opened up the roof and they lowered their friend into the presence of Jesus. But you remember that it wasn't just the paralytic that was now in the presence of Jesus, but the religious leaders were there as well, sitting there front and center. And as the man lay on the bed and all eyes were upon Jesus and upon this man, you remember that Jesus says the most shocking words to these religious leaders. And he says to the man on the bed, your sins are forgiven you. And they went, what? Who can forgive sins but God? This man blasphemes. And their theology was correct. No one can forgive sins except God. Every sin that we commit is an offense against God. And so it is only God that can forgive us our sins. And what they didn't understand is that Jesus is God. And so Jesus asks them a question now as he begins to lead them in their understanding, to open up their understanding of who he is. He asks them a question. Is it easier to say, stand up and rise up and, uh, and be healed or your sins are forgiven? He says, but that you might know that the Son of Man has the power, has the authority to forgive sins. He says, I say to you, arise, stand up. Pick up your bed and be healed. And immediately this paralyzed man stands up, picks up his bed, and walks out. And so we see that the religious leaders and, and the rulers, it began with, with skepticism. The growing opposition in their hearts begins with, with skepticism, but then it would turn into criticism. They were offended at Jesus. That criticism would then turn into opposition, and that opposition would then turn into hostility. And we are seeing the, the progression of that opposition to Jesus. Now, one of the chief areas of chafing with the religious leaders was the fact that Jesus was not upholding the traditions of the law. You see, Moses had been given the law from God there on Mount Sinai. And they took the law that had been given and then they built out this extensive codification of the law. It was not the law itself. It was their interpretation of the law. And when Jesus came, he came to tear down the man-made codification of the law and return the people back to the heart of God. 
For the codes and the requirements and the interpretations had taken the people far away from the intent and the heart of God. And so Jesus was opening back up the people to the reality, to the truth, connecting them once again to a God that loves them, that creates them, that has compassion and mercy upon them, who desires relationship and intimacy and fellowship and communion and an authentic exchange and a loving relationship. This is why God created man to enter into relationship with their maker and to enjoy the richness of that. But now the codification of the man-made interpretation had created a barrier between God and man. And so Jesus here is tearing that down as he came also ultimately to rescue us from the ultimate barrier, and that is our sin. And so Jesus is continuing now to tear down the misconceptions uh, that the people had and the misinterpretation of the law itself. One of the chief areas uh, that there was uh, grinding between the religious leaders and Jesus was on the Sabbath itself and the Sabbath laws. God at Mount Sinai had told uh, the people that they were to work for six days and then on the seventh day, that was to be the Sabbath. That was to be a day of rest. In Exodus chapter 20, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And so God gave to us a gift, and that gift was the Sabbath day of rest. He said six days, work and continue to Build your life and to acquire. But on the seventh day of every week, stop. And I want you to just cease your work and I want you to just enjoy. I want you to spend time enjoying creation. I want you to spend time enjoying everything that you already have. We can get so focused on getting more that we never stop and enjoy everything that we have. And so, God, knowing the nature of man, that we will just keep on going like a hamster on a wheel and go and go and go. He said, he commanded us, I command you, stop and have fun. Stop and enjoy. Enjoy your relationship with me. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your relationship with uh, others. And then the next day, get back after it again and get back to work and enjoy working. And so he had given us this gift of rest. But what had happened is, is that the religious leaders now took that word work and they said, okay, you shall not work on the Sabbath. That's what God said. But what exactly is work? And so they started to define what work is. And they said, okay, you're not allowed to lift anything heavy. Heavy lifting, that would be work. Everybody thinks that. Yes, okay, heavy lifting. What's heavy? 
Is it 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds? Is it 37 and a half pounds? Is it, when is it working? When is it not working? And so they had everything all measured out and everything codified so that this is what you could do and this is what you can't do. And, and true story, okay, in Israel, over there in this day, there was an apartment that was on fire. And what they didn't know was whether or not they were allowed uh, to call for the fire department to come. Because using the phone connects a circuit, and that's considered to be work uh, on the Sabbath. And so they had to run to the rabbi's house to find out if they could call for the fire department to come. In the meantime, the apartment burned down while they were seeking. And this is, they are so focused on the keeping of the law and the letter of the law that they have lost uh, the intent and the purpose of the law. We're going to see here in Luke chapter 6 where there is two different instances of the Sabbath conflict that is going to happen. And Jesus is once again going to pull back and help them to understand the heart of God, the heart of God. Verse 1 of this sixth chapter, it says, Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. So here we see that, again, you're not to do any work. And so harvesting is uh, considered to be work. So you weren't allowed to harvest. You weren't allowed to reap or thresh or winnow. You also weren't allowed to prepare a meal. And so here the disciples are walking through the grain fields. Now, they are their neighbor's grain fields, and you're allowed to eat of the standing grain that was in your neighbor's grain field. This was permissible under the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, it says, When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. You're allowed to walk through it and pluck it, but you're not allowed to harvest it uh, there in your neighbor's. And so that wasn't the issue. The issue was that it was the Sabbath. And here they are going through and they are plucking off the grain. And so the Pharisees in verse 2, and some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And so here they were. They would take the grain, you'd run your hand up the stalk, and that takes the grain head into your hand. And then what you do is you have to separate the the husk from the kernel itself. And so what you would do is, is that you would thresh it. You would rub it in your hands and that breaks the husk uh, off of it. And then you would separate it uh, from the, uh, the grain. And so you would, and so that's winnowing. And then all of that constitutes preparing a meal. So they were saying they're guilty now of reaping, threshing, winnowing, and preparing a meal. Jesus, why are you letting your disciples break the Sabbath here by eating food uh, that they have not prepared in advance? And Jesus now uses a, an illustration that is found in the Old Testament in the life of David. 
And he recalls to them when David was on the run from Saul. Remember that Saul was persecuting David. And now Jonathan sends him off and and David is running for his life. And he's got some men with him. And he comes to the tabernacle at Nob. And there in the tabernacle, there is the table of showbread. And upon the table of showbread, there's the 12 loaves of bread. One loaf for each of the nation. Once a week on the Sabbath, they would replace the old loaves with the new loaves. And then those old loaves were to be eaten, but they were only to be eaten by the priests. uh, And nobody else was allowed to eat that showbread except the priests. David is on the run and he is hungry. And so he goes to the priests there at the tabernacle and they don't have any food except those showbread. And they give to David the showbread and David ate. And he was never rebuked by the Lord for eating the showbread that came there from the tabernacle. And so Jesus is now going to recount for them uh, this story of David in verse 3. But Jesus answering them said, have you not even read this, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, and how he went into the house of God and took and ate the showbread and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. So what is Jesus saying to them? He's saying that man's need takes precedence over the law, that the law was built as a principle in our life, that we would honor that day and rest in that day and enjoy fellowship. But it was never meant to be a burden in our life. And when anybody has a need, that need in their life supersedes the the commandment now to rest. Uh, And so here we see that once again, the the Pharisees were falling into legalism and they had lost the heart of the law. Christianity is not based on rules, but it's based on love. It is based on our relationship with God, love for people and love for God. In verse 5, he says, And he said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. You see, the Pharisees had become the lords of the Sabbath. They were the ones that had all of their interpretations of what work was, and they now lorded it over the people on the Sabbath, writing out spiritual tickets for infractions now upon the the breaking of the law. But Jesus lets them know that he himself is the Lord over the Sabbath. He is the one that has all authority and power and exercises authority over even the Sabbath. In verse 6, Luke records now another incident that happened on a Sabbath, kind of building up the case that they were having against Jesus. It says, Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And so Luke here sets the scene for us. Jesus was once again in the synagogues. And what was he doing? He was teaching. He was revealing God's heart to people. He was explaining to them how much God loves you. Do you know how much God loves you? 
God is crazy about you. Before you even were, God imagined you. And he put together the full package and then he brought you into existence, knitted you together in your mother's womb and drew you out and gave you life. And he has watched over you every single second of your entire life. He is crazy about you. And the sin that separates you from him, he wants that sin removed so that we can fellowship and have communion and intimacy and, and have a restored relationship with them. And, and Jesus is speaking about God's great love. The kingdom of God is now at hand. The issue of sin is going to be removed. And in the kingdom, in the church age, you are going to have intimacy and access and fellowship with God. And here is Jesus talking about these things to the people. But who's also sitting there in the synagogue? The religious leaders are sitting there waiting to see if he says anything now that goes against their traditions and anything that he speaks that, uh, that they can come back and make an accusation against him. But there is a man here in the synagogue that has a withered right hand. And the, the Lord has compassion upon that. The issue is that it's the Sabbath. Now, what was the law about healing on the Sabbath? Now, remember, you're not allowed to do work on the Sabbath. Uh, and so, what, was the con- what constituted work for a doctor? Was a doctor allowed to heal somebody and minister to somebody who was in need of medical attention? Or was that considered to be work? Well, this is what the Pharisees and the scribes had determined. They decided uh, that you were allowed to keep a person from getting sicker, but you weren't allowed to do anything that helped them get better. Helping them get better, that was work. But in keeping them from getting worse, uh, they were allowed to do that, but no more. So if you, you were bleeding and, and all, you could stop the bleeding, but you weren't allowed to actually heal them. And so it's the Sabbath, and here's a man with a withered hand. And here is Jesus. And the religious leaders are there to watch and to wonder what he is going to do. In verse 7, it tells us, So the scribes and Pharisees watched him how? Closely. I mean, they are sitting there watching him closely in the synagogue, whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. Notice the lack of empathy. Notice the lack of concern for this man whose right hand is withered. The scriptures don't tell us the details about his withered hand. We don't know whether he was born with a deformity, with a a withered hand in his life. We don't know whether he was contracted a a disease and a palsy that that now shriveled his hand and put it into a, a withered condition. We don't know whether he injured it while at work and now it was withered from injury. We don't have any of those details, but what we do have is a man in need. We have a man whose right hand now is withered in his life and we have the Savior of the world there in the synagogue ministering. And suddenly the eyes of the Lord are upon this man who has a great need that is before him. And it says now... In verse 8, But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. You can just 
feel the expectancy that was filled in the synagogue there as Jesus now tells this man to stand up in front of everybody. And so the man obeys and he rises to his feet and now everybody is wondering, what is Jesus going to do? And then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy? His question here really now emphasizes the, the question of has your interpretation of not working on the Sabbath, has it outlawed love? Because you see, love is the fulfillment of the law. And so, is it unlawful to help somebody? Is it unlawful to minister and to bless and to heal and to touch and to let love flow out of your life onto others? Have you outlawed that? Is that your interpretation? When God told you to rest and to enjoy one another? And so he queries them with the true intent behind the law. There is never a wrong day to do something good. Amen? There is never a wrong day to do something kind and loving for others. And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Can you imagine what that was like? Jesus gives him the command to stretch out his withered hand. I want you to know that, uh, that he gives him a command that was impossible for him to execute. He couldn't stretch out a withered uh, hand. But by faith, he begins uh, to stretch that hand out. And as he motions and moves his hand, there is an enablement uh, by God to be able to do the impossible. And as he by faith obeys the Lord, what does he receive? He receives the, the object of his desire. We see that his withered hand now is made whole again. And, and Luke tells us that it became as functional as the other hand, as whole as his other hand. And there was this great and marvelous miracle that takes place. And then look at the response of the religious leaders here in verse 11. But they were filled with love and praise God for the healing that had taken place. Hallelujah! Isn't that awesome? I mean, isn't that what you would expect the scriptures to say? Here they have just witnessed this incredible, powerful miracle right in front of their own eyes. Would they not say we were wrong? A great and mighty work has taken place here. We need to rethink this. We need to reprocess what we understand to be true. But you see, they weren't seeking after truth. Why? They had an agenda. I want you to know that agendas are dangerous. Because agendas never have truth in mind. Agendas have a goal in mind. And they will only use what is advantageous to push their goal forwards. And so here they have a, an agenda. They were not concerned with this man. His life the healing that had taken place. And they did not celebrate the miracle. 
Notice what Luke records in verse 11. It says, but they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. What they might do. What are we going to do with Jesus? John's gospel gives us an insight onto this and, and tells us what the outcome of their discussion was. In John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 16, it says, For this reason the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Because he had healed and blessed uh, on the Sabbath, they now purposed in their hearts that, uh, that they would kill Jesus. It is interesting to me how this man was healed as he came into the presence of Jesus, but that it wasn't simply coming into the presence of Jesus by which he received his healing. There was an act of bringing his brokenness actually to the Lord. And I believe that, that withered hands are still being healed all the time in the presence of the Lord. I believe that that all of us have withered hands in one degree or another. I believe that withered hands today can speak not only of physical infirmities, but I believe that we can have a withered spirit. I believe that we can have a withered heart. I believe that we can have withered marriages and withered relationships. And, and that the withering is, is nothing more than sin having its effect upon God's design for our life. A hand that once uh, worked uh, fine now is, is withered and no longer functions in the capacity in which the designer had designed it to function. Broken hearts, uh, hurt and wounded scars, uh, maiming and, and hardships in our lives can twist and change and, and break. That which was intended to love now loses its capacity to love. Marriages can be crippled and withered by sin. Sin is the outcome of fallen man breaking God's law and wounding ourselves and others. We are all sinners. We are all broken by sin. The sin not only of our own life that twists uh, us and withers us, but also the sin of other sinners around us that also wound us uh, as well. But the Lord has come to bring back to the fullness of life that which has been damaged, that which has been bruised, that which has been broken, that which has been withered uh, in our lives. But I want you to know, just coming into the presence of Jesus, this man was in the synagogue, he was in the presence of Jesus, but the Lord asked him now, more than just his presence, to bring his brokenness to him. Bring your withered hand to me. Stretch it out to me. And I believe that the same voice of the Lord 2,000 years ago that invited that withered man to stretch out to his withered hand to the Lord is, is the same voice inviting each and every one of us this morning to, to bring your withered part of your life before the Lord. Stretch it out to Him. The Lord doesn't want us to live in a withered condition. That's not what He created us for. It's not what He intended us for. He came to rescue us, to save us, to redeem us, but also to transform us 
to metamorphosize us, to give us new life and to make us whole. What part of your life do you know is broken? What part of your life has been hurt or wounded or damaged that you are walking around and carrying with you? And would you reach out that withered part of your life this morning to the Lord himself? And the Lord, he is able and he is willing to touch. He will not force himself on you. He's not going to pry your hand off of your chest to inspect it and to look at your wound. But he asks you, bring it to me. Bring what you know is broken in your life. And let me touch it. And let me heal you. And so we see here that that Jesus uh, now uh, is going to go and select the apostles. In the 12th verse it says, Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in, in prayer. Luke shows us that at every important intersection in Jesus' life, that Jesus was out praying, that Jesus would go and seek revelation and seek direction from the Father. He is about to choose the 12 apostles that are going to be the pillars of his earthly ministry that he is going to pour into, and, and they will then become the church. And so... Who are the twelve? Which of the disciples? Now a disciple means a learner. So everybody that was coming and listening to him teach, they were learners. But there was going to be twelve that were going to be apostles. Apostle, the word apostle means to be sent out, to be specially commissioned and sent out. And so there were twelve that now were going to be his inner group that he was going to pour into. And so what does Jesus do? He spends the entire night in the presence of the Lord and praying. Now, Jesus didn't have a house and he didn't have an office and he didn't have a place that he could depart and be away from people. And so where would he go? He would go into the wilderness. He would walk out in nature into the glorious creation that was set before. And he would fellowship and commune with the Father. In verse 13 it says, And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself. And from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. And so we see the twelve now are chosen. Verse 14, And Simon, who he also named Peter and Andrew, his brother James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And so Luke now sets forth the twelve that were chosen. In verse 17, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits. And so now a great crowd forms, and people are coming from all over. 
They're coming from all over. From Jerusalem, they're making all their way all the way to Galilee. And from Judea, the surrounding area, they're coming to see Jesus. But not only that, but also from outside of the nation, Tyre and Sidon, they are Gentile nations that are to the north and on the seacoast. And people are bringing their need to Jesus. Would that be us also? Would we bring our need to Jesus Whatever it is that you are struggling with and wrestling with in your life, bring it to the Lord. The Lord loves you. The Lord cares about you. He is gentle and lowly. He is approachable. And He cares about your every concern in your life. And so the people were bringing, they were bringing their issues. They were bringing those who, who were sick, those who had unclean spirits. And notice what it says in verse 18, and they were healed. He has come to restore. He has come to heal. He has come to save. This is why Jesus came to this earth. And it says in verse 19, and the whole multitude sought to touch him. For power went out from him and healed them all. And so all of them were touched by the power of Jesus when they came. And that same healing power, Jesus holds that same healing power even today. As we close our study here, that's really what just was pressed upon my heart is is how they were healed. They were healed. Everybody was healed. Everybody was healed. Not just some, not just most, just think about that. Everybody that came to Jesus was healed. And today I believe that that the Lord wants to heal everybody. I believe the greatest sickness of every single person, the greatest disease that we all have is the disease of sin. It is the plague of man's soul and it is what separates us from God. And it is the very thing that Jesus came to be able to pay the penalty, to remove it off of your soul. Why? That your soul might be whole and healthy, that it might be born again, that your soul might be reborn now, able to connect to God and to be able to be a child of God. And as a child of God, every single child of God, when you die, you will go up to the gates of heaven and those gates of heaven will open up to you and you will enter in. And the invitation is given by the Lord to come and enter into the kingdom and be a part of the great and glorious celebration that is going on. And Jesus came to invite everybody into the kingdom, to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I was thinking about how God desires us to be with him for all eternity in heaven. I want you to know this, for God wills that none should perish and that every single one of us should come to everlasting life. And there is a great and glorious banquet at the marriage supper of the Lamb that you have been invited to, that I have been invited to. And I likened it to being invited to a wedding. You get a wedding invitation in the mail. And somebody is having a wedding and they thought about you. And they said, it would bless us to have you there with us to celebrate uh, our special day. 
You are wanted. We have provision for you. We will make a space for you and, and we will put your name on a little name card, right? At the, the, we'll know exactly where you're going to sit and everything is being planned out now. And there's just one thing that we want to know from you. Will you come? Will you accept that invitation? And we're asking you to RSVP, just send that back to us so that we know that you're going to come and we'll have a place for you. And you look at that invitation, you say, you know, that would be fun. I like them. That would be enjoyable. And I think I'm going to go ahead and RSVP. And, and you put it into the pile that you have of things to do. And, and more mail comes and it goes on top. And, and life continues to happen. And, and all of a sudden you come to the day of the wedding. You haven't responded, but you know them. They like you. They thought of you. They invited you. And so you decide to get dressed and to just show up. Certainly they will be excited to see you. But when you show up and they look for your name on the list of where to put you, your name is not found. And and they regret to inform you that that while they wanted you to come and to celebrate, you never accepted their invitation. And now all of the places have been filled. They measured the food and have the name tags and all the tables are full. And though you were welcomed and wanted, you are excluded from the celebration. There is a great marriage supper of the Lamb that is going to be taking place in heaven. And you have been invited. Your invitation is there in front of you this very day. There is provision <laughs> and the celebration. Your presence is wanted. You are wanted. And you are welcome. But you need to RSVP. And I am saddened by those people that like the idea of going and are planning on going, but they never, ever send their invitation back. They never receive that invitation. And when they die, they go to those gates of heaven, knowing that they had been invited. Uh, and they knock on the doors, but the doors do not open to them. Because now... The time has passed for them to return that invitation. And they will never see the glory of those doors opening and the bells rejoicing and all of the saints and friends that come out to welcome you as you enter into the glory of heaven and as Christ himself, who is the light uh, of heaven, welcomes you in and seats you at the great supper of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Today, that invitation is set before every single one of us. And all you need to do is to simply say, I want to be there. I receive that invitation. I want you to be my Lord and Savior. I want to enter into heaven and I want to spend all eternity with you. I want you to know that nobody else can take your invitation and fill it out for you. You have to.
to do that yourself. But this morning, I am going to invite every single person that's never filled out their invitation to come down to the front and we'll fill it out together and we will get you situated so that you will have the absolute assurance uh, that those gates will open and that you will be at the marriage uh, supper of the Lamb. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to take your invitation and to respond and to say, yes, I am coming to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you have never done that, then right here, right now is the time to do that. We're going to worship a song. And if you've never done that, then I want you to stand up right where you are. As many as have not done it, all come down together and we will take care of that and you will respond to the invitation and say that you are coming and you will be a child of God forever. So if that's you right now, I want you to stand up and come forwards while we worship. Congregation, let's worship. And those that want to receive that invitation, you come now to the front and receive that invitation. Come now. Nobody else can do this. You have to fill it out. Come now and receive Christ. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I need 